Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. How should progressives in America think about the United States Senate? My guest today to discuss this is the senior senator from Ohio, Sherrod Brown. This episode is a little bit shorter than usual. The senator obviously has a very busy schedule, and I was able to get on it for half an hour to ask him some questions, which I very much appreciate. And I think we were able to get into some real depth, both discussing his latest book and some political theory questions, which it was really great to be able to put to a sitting US senator. Because I had slightly less time than usual, I did sort of skip my usual introductory questions and just get into straight what I really wanted to ask. So I'll provide a short bio of the senator. Before we get started, I also recorded a short edition at the end of the episode where I just clarified what my own views are on one particular thing that we discussed because I think it's really important. And I also do an update of the interviews we have coming up over the next few weeks on the podcast for those of you who haven't who don't follow me on social media and haven't seen my general announcements of who's coming on. I do an update at the end of this interview. So stay tuned for that. Turning to today's guest, Senator Brown is a Democrat. He was the 47th Secretary of State from, for Ohio from 83 to 91, and then the representative for Ohio's 13th Congressional District from 93 to 2007. In 2006, uh, Senator Brown defeated the two-term Republican incumbent Mike DeWine and then was re-elected in 2012. Senator Brown identifies as both a populist and a progressive, and by the ideology rankings I looked up, is roughly in the top 10 most liberal senators in the current Senate, depending on exactly how you want to measure that. On the issues, he opposed the Iraq war at the time, and one of only 67 members of Congress who voted against the Patriot Act. He's consistently voted in favour of gun control, which has earned him an F rating from the National Rifle Association, NRA. Conversely, he has a 100% score from the Human Rights Campaign, which is a gay and lesbian advocacy group, indicating he's been pretty consistently pro-gay rights. One issue on which Senator Brown breaks from his party is free trade. He's criticised trade agreements with China and other countries, and he opposes NAFTA, which he argues should be renegotiated to aid Ohio workers. In 2016, Senator Brown was vetted as a potential um, VP running mate for Clinton, and reportedly the choice came down between Brown and Tim Kaine, who as you know, was ultimately selected. And again, reportedly, what that choice came down to was that had Clinton won, Ohio's Republican governor would have chosen Brown's replacement, whereas Kane's replacement would have been chosen by a Democratic governor. This, however, turned out to be academic, because again, as unfortunately we all know, Trump won the presidency. And he won in a electoral college victory that included Senator Brown's state of Ohio, which he won by eight percentage points. 
in 2018. Sherrod Brown ran for re-election in Ohio for a third term, and when he was running, he was the only statewide elected official from Ohio at the time. The fact that he won convincingly, with 53.4% of the vote, led to a lot of speculation, both before and after the election, that he would be a strong um, candidate for the Democratic nominee for president in 2020, including a 2017 Washington Monthly column suggesting that Brown would be a good figure to unite the establishment and progressive wings of the party. He reportedly considered it, toward some early states, but on March of this year said he would not run for president and would remain a senator, and also ruled out any interest in being vice president. On top of his political career, Senator Brown is the author of three books, Congress from the Inside, Observations from the Majority and the Minority, Myths of Free Trade, Why American Trade Policy Has Failed, and Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America, which is the book we start by discussing today. It's an unusual and really interesting book which is the biographies, short biographies, of eight progressive senators who sat at the same desk in the Senate that Senator Brown currently occupies, and in a Senate tradition which I learned about through reading this book, carved their names into it. It's an interesting bunch. The senators are Hugo Black, Theodore Francis Green, Glenn Taylor, Herbert H. Lehman, Al Gore, Senior, William Proxmire, Robert F. Kennedy, and George McGovern. An interesting list, I think you'd agree, right? So, I started by discussing this latest book with the Senator, and then moved on to some general political theory questions about the Senate as an institution. I was really excited to get the chance to do this interview, and I hope you enjoy the result and find it interesting. So, without any further preamble, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Senator Sherrod Brown. I've just finished your book, Senator, uh, Desk 88. Um, you want to quickly tell us about the concept for this? Because you've, you've been working on this for some time now, right? Yeah, a, a dozen years ago when I came to the Senate, uh, the freshmen choose their offices last, their vice seniority, their, their committees last, essentially, and their desks last. And so there were 10 freshmen uh, looking on the Senate floor at where they would sit in the 10 seats available. And I, there were no bad seats, so I began to pull out. I'd heard a senior senator told me that senators, um, sort of like middle school or junior high, scratched their names, carved their names in the, in the bottom desk drawer of the desk drawer. So I pulled out a handful of desk drawers, and, and I came upon one that said Black of Alabama, Lehman of New York, Ribicoff of Connecticut, and then it just said Kennedy, no first name, no state. So I, I asked Senator Ted Kennedy, who was sitting nearby, to walk over and I said, Ted, which brother's desk is this? And he looked at it and said, well, it's got to be Bobby's. I have Jack's desk. So um, 
I liked that. And I began to think about the people that signed my desk and my wife went on eBay and ordered a bunch of books that were, uh, that, that were out of print, a bunch of history books at the Senate. And I started reading, I ended up right reading 160 or so books and doing a hundred interviews and over a decade, uh, wrote this book about, um, progressives that moved the country forward over the last, um, 70 or 80 years. This is a passion project, right? It doesn't, it doesn't read like a lot of the books politicians write, and I don't mean to sound too dismissive with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote it, number one. I did the research, number two, and often uh, political, more political books written by politicians uh, don't, I mean, they, they get a lot of help, and they don't always do all the writing, and um, I was in no hurry to do this. I wanted to do it right. It took that took about a dozen years, probably ten or eleven years of actual writing. Um, I'd stop. I'd start. I had a day job. I had two campaigns to run in the meantime. So, um, in in a big state that's competitive, where Republicans win much of the time, and so um, I uh, it, it was it was a it was a passion project in that sense. Yeah, it's not a memoir. It's not a preparation to run for president anything like that yeah um yeah you've got a busy day job is putting it somewhat mildly holding yeah. down ohio for yeah. the... and, I, and i wanted and i wanted and i wanted to show toby that that um the power of government can be used to make people's lives better and that's that's really what these eight senators the, what well they had a couple things in common they were all white men but that's what the senate was in those days uh and still is in many ways and and i would say that and you know, 50 years from now, if someone else were to look at this desk, they would they would see great accomplishment from women and people of color that held this desk that that would um, decide would would make the Senate more progressive because diversity does mm. make 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 a, a body more progressive that way. So, um, and I just what 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 else they had in common was they all really did move the country forward in big ways. When progressives win, we don't win nearly as much as we lose, but when we win, we went really big from Social Security and collective bargaining to Medicare and voting rights and civil rights. So in the book, you talked about waves there, right? You detail three progressive waves. Um, so we're not going to get through all of the senators, but basically starting the clock in um, 1912, when the, Dem- when the uh, Senate became democratically elected, there was one big wave, there was another with FDR, and then there was another in the 60s with civil rights, and so on. Looking through all of that history, um, my question is, what has been the role of the Senate specifically in advancing progress in the last hundred years or so in America? Because after all, this is an institution almost designed to be counter-progressive. You quote Madison as saying, the Senate should, quote, be so constituted as to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority, end quote. So to put the question differently, um, would we have had more progress or more waves of progress had we had differently constituted upper chamber or perhaps even no upper chamber? What has been the role for good or ill of the Senate as an institution in that? Well, yeah, yeah, that's a good, good insight. I, um, uh, and a good, good way to ask it. I, the, the Senate, the, the, our, our government has a conservative tilt to it in the sense that, that when it was written, um, it was written by, you know, mostly affluent men uh, of the time, landowners, and they were, they wanted freedom 
freedom, certainly freedom of speech. They wanted self-government, but they also wanted to make sure that those those in the minority, uh, and they were in the minority of the population, affluent white men, that their power was was not unchallenged, but that always represented at the table. And so you have an electoral college where, um, well, first of all, you have congressional districts chosen, um, gerrymandered in a way that slaves didn't, slaves counted as three-fifths of a person. Um, They didn't have any rights, but they gave more power to southern states, and that's reflected in the congressional delegation. They had more House members as a result. And they had more electors in the Electoral College. Um, in 1800, Jefferson would have lost uh, if not for the Electoral College. Um, it was decided later in the how and all that, but Jefferson would not have beaten Adams in 1800 if if the um, if the slave states hadn't had those extra um, population where the the slaves weren't given any power, just added to their to their power. Hmm. So um, I think you start with that, but throughout the Senate. The Senate is a pretty conservatizing body um, because small states have as much uh, power as bigger, more progressive states, although plenty of small states are fairly progressive, plenty of big states are not. Mm. But it, it does it does say that. I mean, it does speak to that, I think. But it just means the Senate's got it. It just means when we have these waves of progressivism, um, you need a pretty big wave. And that's 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 why we've had you. Mm of them, but it's also why they made such a difference. I mean, you, you think of what happened, especially in the 30s with Roosevelt and the 60s with Johnson, and the kind of things, the kinds of things that happened uh, from Social Security to collective bargaining to Medicare to Medicaid to women's rights to civil rights to, the, to Head Start to um, immigration reform. Those, those things had huge impact on the country, not just in the years they were enacted, but in the ensuing years that still do. I mean, what, what those social insurance programs, the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, hmm. um, and unemployment insurance have done to create and sustain a middle class is, um, is, is, is pretty much unprecedented around the world. But you would bite the constitutional philosophy bullet of saying, and I don't mean to be too insulting towards an institution to which, you know, you clearly have a great deal of affection for, but you would bite the constitutional philosophy bullet that the Senate is, as you put it, has a conservative bent in terms of its composition and yeah, has been yeah. a high hurdle for progress. Yeah, and that's why, that's why, Toby, in the last two or three years, I've changed my view on the filibuster that um, I, the, the Senate right. protects minority rights, as you said, and minority means small numbers, not African-American people or or, or Latinos, when I say minority rights, they protect minority rights, but and they partly do it through the filibuster, where you need 60 votes. I mean, we would have, if we only needed 59 votes, we would have had a voluntary buy-in for Medicare at the age of 55, which would have made the health care law much stronger and much um, more resistant to criticism from Republicans. Uh, would have been a lot harder for them to make their case. So um, that was because of the filibuster rule, and I, I just think the days of filibuster rule should be behind us. I just think that the, the government is so conservative in the court system now, with the Electoral College and with the Senate overall, that you should need 60 votes to do some progressive advance. Yeah, I completely agree with you there, and you know, for what it's worth, right? Um, but 
So my argument on this has been, it seems we have a mismatch, I mean, just to take the case of the Senate, between our political culture and our political institutions, and one of them's going to have to bend. So like, you know, you write at the end of your book about how increasingly we're seeing the trend where Democrats are running up the score in big cities and then just getting decimated in rural areas. And obviously there's exceptions to this, but as a rule, it seems like what we've seen, say, since the time you were elected to the Senate, is demographic identity in America has become much more closely aligned with partisan identity, and as a result, we have this kind of two-teams culture has arisen, in which voters are voting for national parties to institute a national agenda, politicians are behaving as members of parties primarily, and voters are assessing them as such, and that's just absolutely antithetical to the way the Senate is supposed to work, which assumes regionals re- regional interests, individuals representing regions and being held accountable as such. And either the culture has to change, or our institutions have to change so that a national party can't hang on as a blocking player with a tiny percentage of the national popular vote. Did that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I, but I also, um, when I think of dysfunction in the Senate today and sort of the tribalism, that, that's the word that a lot of political commentaries use to describe partisanship today, that people are, you know, that when you see a survey, how would you feel if one of your kids married somebody and if you're a Democrat that was a Republican mm-hmm. or if you're a Republican that's a Democrat? Um, a generation ago, people really didn't much care. Now the feelings are pretty strong. But but I also I also caution against against um, romanticizing the past. I mean, if you look back in the 1950s, you had 95 white men and one white woman mm. in the Senate, and they couldn't pass a civil rights bill. So I, I I understand the Senate was more cooperative in those days and less partisan. Mm. But part of that is because the Senate was had a number of what we would call liberal Republicans. They're, they're extinct now. Mm. Certainly in, the, in, in Congress, they're extinct. They aren't necessarily extinct in the population. And Congress in those days had a number of white Southern segregationist senators that, that frankly, I welcome that they left the party. Mm. Um, they either changed their views or, or died out or left the party, whatever. But um, they don't belong. In the, they belong in the Republican Party and, and are, are, are populated liberally, if you will, to possibly do a turn of phrase. But um, so I, I, I think that it, it's, it's hard to compare the Senate of today or the government of today with 30 or 40 years ago because of part because of that realignment. And I've seen it in my state. We didn't. I mean, we have some very conservative people that I don't need to call them segregationists. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about that now. But but that um, that you see this really stark change where um, I won to win. I won by seven points in, in 88 counties. I won 16. I won the urban areas, all the metro areas. I won the university counties. And then I won sort of the tourism counties on Lake Erie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. And as you point, you got you, 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 I don't remember the verb you used in rural areas, emasculated, uh, destroyed, whatever <laughs> happened. But. All of this, all of this blues, big and rural areas, in different different levels. But 
um, all of us lose big in rural areas that run up the score in metro areas. Yeah, and I mean, certainly I'm not pining for the composition of the Democratic Party in the 50s and 60s. It does just seem, though, that even just in the present day, excluding history, there's a contradiction between a national political culture, which is strongly two teams, strongly partisan, strongly party-line voting, and an institution, the Senate, which seems to be designed to operate in the opposite political culture. And if you accept that as a contradiction that we have, there seems like there's two paths forward, and you can kind of see this in the narratives of the 2020 primary. One path forward would be we go back to sort of congeniality and my friends across the aisle and all that. In other words, we change the culture. The other would be we accept the culture and we change the institutions. We remove the filibuster, you know, and, and on the more extreme accounts, add more states, pack the court, and we essentially become a parliamentary system. If you accept the contradiction, which way do you lean? Do we have to change the culture, or do we have to change the institutions? Well, in, in both there are change, and I, I, would, I, would, I would say we move with caution mm. and probably do some changing of both. I mean, I I want to. I, I. I mean, I, I don't. I don't want to dramatically change institutions. Uh, I want the Senate. The, the hundred years ago, when the Senate became popularly elected, that was a good thing. Um, the today campaign finance is such that um, that the, the, the dark dark money, especially one of the reasons the Congress won't uh, won't won't move on climate change, will barely debate it, is because of the money in the Republican Party and the Koch brothers' influence that. Pretty much says if a Republican sticks her head up, usually his head up, uh, and uh, on climate change, that that head will get cut off in the primary by a candidate funded with dark money that doesn't ask questions and stays totally on the on the far right playbook uh, in the far right playbook. So um, I, I don't I don't know. I answer your question: How fast do you change the institutions? Do you change the culture? Um, changing the culture is pretty hard, and it's even harder in Trump's America, of course. Mm because the tribalism is so strong when, when you can watch the hearings this week and you can understand pretty quickly, even if you were set down in those hearings and didn't know anything from another planet, um, you would pretty soon know that this president did things that Richard Nixon never did. And um, Republicans still defend him because he's their president. And he's our president too, but because he's their party's president, and um, it's it's a dangerous thing. Yeah, I mean, so I'm on the institutional side of that, in that I'm ready to be more aggressive than most Democrats are in terms of, we, like you say, abolish the bloody filibuster, right? And like make changes that will allow us to legislate. And what people say is, but that's really, really hard to do, to change institutions. And I say, yeah, it is. But it's also, like you just said, Senator, really, really, really hard to change the culture. And that seems to be another contradiction we have in the Senate right now is it is designed to be this check on the popular thing but it's also designed to be what's the phrase the cooling chamber where you can have people exercise a bit of judgment and dare I say courage because they are insulated from having to be elected every two years and I don't see that courage just to take the case of impeachment I don't see that coming realistically from half of the political spectrum Yeah, um, yeah, I, 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 the, the, the difficulty of changing the culture—I'll go back to that—is yeah. is 
is great. And I, I don't think, I don't think the, I mean, I, I in, a, in another era, maybe, maybe five years after Trump, um, maybe the, the culture can go back to something a little more, um, a little more centered and a little more, um, I don't, I don't buy this entirely that the Republicans moved to an extreme. I mean, the, the, the issue is the challenge here. We were just talking about this in the car today that, that, um, you know, that it, it, we just did a conference I've done every year for the last decade, for five years, I guess, um, with students. We had about 400 students from 70 universities and colleges around Ohio. And, um, they, they, some took on a bit of a partisan tone to it hmm. when it's not built that way and it's not been that way in the past. But the people that were thought it was partisan were reacting and they were, they were conservative kids. Hmm. Most of the kids there weren't, but they were conservative kids and they saw it as partisan because um, we talked about um, a free press hmm. and the importance of independent journalism. And they support, these kids support a president that says the enemies, the journalists were the enemies of the people. Mm. We talked about the whole issue of truth. If you don't have, uh, if you don't start with, with some true statements and, and real legitimate, verifiable facts, how do you, um, how do you move forward in discussion? And you talk like that, they think you're attacking the president. So it's, it's pretty hard with this president. But but George Bush played the race too. It wasn't like this is the first president done it. He just the the sort of poodle yap turned into the Doberman full throated roar with this president. It just makes it all harder. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't believe that this is all reducible to Trump. I think the trends we've been talking to no, have been coming not. for a generation now. But the fact even that they've been coming for a generation makes me sceptical that they're going to disappear as soon as Trump's out of office. I think a strongly... Yeah, so I agree with that. I agree with that. Uh, but it can, it can be softened. And, and there's, there's thinking people in the Republican Party that are very concerned about this. Um, I hear senators quietly um, in small groups or one-on-one with me, grumble about Trump's um, lying, grumble about his character, um, thinks the number of them think he's a racist, so, um, and is not ashamed of it. And so um, I, I think this, I think, it will, I think it will get better, but my expectation, post-Trump, my expectation is we've really got to make it better. At the beginning of the book, one of the things I, the first quote I use at the frontispiece, if that's the right word, is, what Dr. King said that that um, that progress doesn't roll in on the wheels of inevitability. That nothing nothing changes, nothing is inevitable. No change is inevitable. Um, you've got to make a change, and that's that's our mission. One of the reasons I wrote the book is I wanted to kind of do a call to action, a call to arms for people that understand the progressive the, the progressive victories, what it means to our country. So we did the past, the present of the Senate. In the couple of minutes left, um, I did want to ask you what you see as the future of the Senate, because I can, I can well imagine a scenario where, at least on the left, we get to a place of a real crisis of democratic legitimacy with the Senate. So there's two, um, 
outcomes that occupy our imagination right now. One is Trump gets re-elected and everything's awful. The other is we have a, a fourth wave of progress, right? We get big majorities, or at least majorities, and a democratic president, and we do all the good stuff our candidates are talking about. It seems to me the most likely outcome would probably be a middle one, in that Trump's acquitted in the Senate trial on a partisan vote, loses re-election, but the Republicans hang on to, like, a razor-thin majority, and then just obstruct the crap out of everything for four years. And in that scenario where we've won the election but we can't legislate, we probably can't, let's say, get Supreme Court appointees put on, we're having trouble even get cabinet people put on, I could well imagine a backlash on the left of the sort that's already beginning to happen with the Supreme Court, where our tribe essentially stops regarding this body as legitimate at all, stop seeing it as something that we should support. Um, is, do you think that's plausible, that we do get to that sort of crisis? Um, uh, or if not, like, how do you see the future of the Senate? Well, it's certainly plausible that, that we win the Senate stays Republican, although I think our three months ago, if we had done this interview, Toby, I would have said the Democrats don't have much chance to win the Senate. I think our chances now are approaching 50% and growing every week or so. So um, I feel I feel good about that, but, but certainly there's a distinct possibility we win the White House, lose the Senate. Mitch McConnell stays as the majority leader and continues even more than what he did with Obama at the same time, to, to block Obama, and to, to obstruct at the same time you have Trump out there encouraging voters to, um, he would not use this term, almost use civil disobedience against Democrats. I mean, you can see Trump continuing his rallies because he loves them, because mm. everybody cheers his holy name. Um, but you could see um, you could see him still doing that and bringing a lot of people with him. And you could probably still see the the fear of many Republican politicians that that Trump could beat him in a primary. I mean, even as ex president, mm. even as disgraced president. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, I can see that scenario. Scenario. I don't know what happens then. It's pretty hard to play out with any certainty. Uh, I mean, you can take that assumption that they win the we win the White House, they win the Senate. I, I could take that and explain that away easily how that would happen. But the other steps, it just could go a lot of different places on, on how how obstructionists will be, and then what the reaction will be. Would that mean if they're so real obstructionist, so in our face, obvious? Does that mean in twenty twenty two we have a real change election and throw out a bunch of Republicans that were elected in? They came from the class of 2010, which was a big Republican mm. year. And do they lose them in 2022? And then, then, then all bets are off that you have a progressive government. Yeah. Um, final question then. I mean, that's a scenario in which the left starts questioning the legitimacy of our constitutional yeah. setup. I think it's plausible, but not inevitable. Should the left be asking these questions? We're increasingly asking... Um, about Supreme Court legitimacy, and should we pack the court and stuff like that? Should people be asking questions about the legitimacy of the Senate, which is a very old design and is very anti-proportional? Should people be asking these questions? Well, sure, I, I think that, but I mean, I don't, I don't know question the legitimacy of the Senate, where that gets you. Um, it doesn't mean you decide not to vote. If it does, then we have an even worse Senate. So, I do. I think asking those questions, figuring out how to make the Senate work as more responsive to the public, and one of the ways is filibuster change, and one of the ways is campaign finance reform. Those are the two most important mm. 
uh, of getting a different kind of Senate, getting a different kind of Senate for campaign finance reform, um, getting a Senate that can operate for, um, or in the public interest in filibuster reform. Mm. So um, I think that's, that's part of that equation. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for coming on, Senator. Uh, the book is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Any final words anywhere you'd like to send our listeners? Well, only to say thank you. And, and as I said, I wrote the book to show that, that um, the, the power, power in government power can be used to make people's lives better. And we've, we've seen that throughout the last century, and we'll see it in the future. And I think a more diverse Senate in the future will be a more progressive Senate. And and, and and satisfy and please some of the people that you were talking about. From your lips to God's ears, Senator. Um, <laughs> and we, we take down yeah. the filibuster and do some constitutional stuff as well, maybe. Yep. In your, um, in your, it was a very thoughtful conversation. So thank you very much, Toby. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. One point I just wanted to make in closing was to essentially double down on something Senator Brown said in the answer to the final question. Namely, that not voting is not the solution to concerns about democratic legitimacy. I do think there are concerns about democratic legitimacy. I do think there are both practical and theoretic concerns about the functioning of our government right now, which you heard me air. But I could not agree more with the senator that if those on the left think the solution to those concerns is to stop showing up to vote, the immediate and obvious consequence will be every single one of those concerns will get worse, and they'll get worse fast. So I've talk- I talked about legitimacy a lot, and I wanted to be really clear that that is not what I meant by that. I do think, I do think that it is worth asking these theory questions about democratic legitimacy. It is worth asking what our moral evaluation of our own government is. It should be worth asking how citizens should think about that, and how in practice they do think about that. Even if these questions don't have an immediate punchline, even if they don't immediately recommend a particular course of action. This is, after all, the political philosophy podcast, so almost definitionally, I do think those questions are worth thinking about. So, I'm ordinarily sceptical of doing little end notes like that. I did want to just in this case, because the senator had a hard deadline coming up, and ordinarily I would have been able to just clarify in real time that, you know, that is my view, and when I talk about legitimacy, I'm talking about it in that broader theoretic sense, not in the sense of opting out of our political processes, which I, I think is a disastrous idea, quite frankly. So I wanted to add that note. Okay, cool. So with that said, um, I have some really, really great guests continuing to come up, and I've recorded a few conversations, which I'm really excited to bring you. Next week will be the first part of a two-parter with Professor Stanley Fish, and I'll do a full bio um, at the time, but Fish is uh, 
literary theorist, legal scholar, public intellectual, polemicist. He's one of these sort of academics that's kind of like done everything and written about everything. And he was someone I definitely had in mind when I said I've been responsive to feedback to get people on the show who disagree with me and will you know, challenge my ideas. So it's a two-part discussion. In the first one, we have a sort of extended back and forth on whether free speech is an internally coherent idea, and if it's not, what that means. And then in the second, we get as close as the podcast has done to a debate about the campus culture wars that we're seeing, and free speech issues that might or might not be at stake there. And while we do hold strongly contrasting views, it was a discussion I enjoyed a lot, and I thought it was sustained and really moving beyond some of the usual talking points that we hear, and good-natured and civil, although neither of us was pulling intellectual punches, as it were. So those are two episodes I'm really excited to bring you. After that, I also did an episode with the historian David Farber, who has a new book out called Crack. Uh, Rock Cocaine, Street Capitalism, and the Decade of Greed. And we talk a lot about how America has thought and rethought its relationship to drugs, uh, panics about violence and about race, and what the public um, policy response was in terms of over-incarceration, which we're still living with today. So that's what's coming up on the podcast. I think that's some really interesting stuff, and um, I'm excited to bring it to you. If you want to support this project, a few ways you can do it. Sharing your favourite episodes on your social media, or forwarding them to friends, is uh, really great and really appreciated. All of the growth we've had on this has been from people doing that. And if you're able to support us in a more monetary way, we do have a Patreon page, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. We don't do any advertisements, and the show goes out for free. So all of the costs associated with this podcast are covered by listeners chipping in whatever they can. And we've been suggesting a couple of dollars a show, a couple of bucks, a cup of coffee, something like that. If you can support it on that level, it would certainly be appreciated. And thank you to everyone who does that. So yeah, that was a bit of an extended outro. I'm really excited to keep bringing you these conversations, and thank you again for listening. <laughs>